This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Hey, Nation, I'm extremely excited to have uh, Sachin Sexiana on, uh, on the podcast. He has been at the forefront of technology on consumer apps that I have spent my career navigating and trying to use to the best of my ability. Want to get more tech talk into the podcast this year, especially as Web3 continues to evolve and people need more tech uh, uh, information and education. And I thought we could nerd it up for 20 or 30 minutes here and deliver a great podcast for everybody. So uh, Sachin, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Gray. Why don't, why don't you, before we get into that, let's just get to know Sachin a little bit. Like, where, where were you born? What kind of kid were you? Let's play that game, zero to 14 years old. We're, give us a little <laughs> narrative. Yeah, it's a great question. So I was actually born in a very small town called uh, Saharanpur in India. Uh, it had about 80,000 people um, when I was growing up. And there was no technology. There was no internet. There was no computers at that time. So it was a fun upbringing. And fun fact, I did not know how to speak in English until the age of 14. So then I had to learn what English looks like, what that yes. language is. So yeah. it's been a great journey of learning and exposing myself to different things. Um, and during this time, I was born and raised in a family of doctors. My dad uh, was a heart surgeon and he uh, grew up in a family of academics and solving tough problems was the norm. So I grew up in that culture where take on big, bold, ambitious problems to solve and then just, just, just put your head down and keep solving them. So that's the mindset. That's the world that I came from. I love that. Um, what were you into as a kid? Like, like soccer, highlight, you know, uh, cricket, uh, books, like yeah. games, like food. Like, what were you? What were your biggest interests? Would you say in your youth before you started learning English? And then let's talk about how you got into tech. Yeah, my biggest interests were, were cricket and soccer. Like, I was a big sports nerd. You know, I love watching every game. Till date, Ronaldo is my favorite soccer player. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and I, I, I will follow wherever he goes. Uh, and uh, I played a lot of uh, sports as well. But more importantly, I was just deep into nerding out on books. So I've read pretty much any book you can imagine about people. Fun fact, Gary, I never read in my life any book about uh, fiction or you know, love stories or novels, any of those things. I actually read about people. I read about people like Bill Gates. I read about people who have been successful in different walks of life. There's music. Uh, whether it's arts, whether it's engineering, whether it's business. And my goal along, all along was to figure out what they learned in their journey that I can pick up on, that I can learn from, and probably at some point in time incorporate in my life as well. So I've always been this guy who wants to know people's story, why they did what they did. The why matters more to me than the what. And those books helped me learn a lot about those people. Fascinating. Take me through transition. What, um, what happens in your high school years? And university years. <laughs> yeah, I was actually fascinated by aerospace. So my undergrad degree is in aerospace engineering. I wanted to be this guy who went to space, you know, did some crazy stuff. Back in the day, there was no Elon Musk. There was no SpaceX, you know. So <laughs> the only thing I could do was go to NASA. <laughs> and um, I'm not that kind of guy who likes doing a PhD, you know, five years and figuring those things out. I have ADHD, you know. <laughs> I, like, I just like to go and do things. Um, so my undergrad um, and high school was more around learning, um, I stumbled upon this book called Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. And that fundamentally changed my view of all the things I could learn about space and all the things I could learn about how humans can survive in space and what gravity is, et cetera. So that was my starting position. And then when I, and I, that I went on to, um, to do an undergrad in aerospace engineering, my dream and my vision was go to space, figure out how to build society and civilization server then how to solve those tough technical problems. But then in my third year of engineering, I stumbled upon 
computer science, you know, what computers can do as well. So I transitioned over to the tech industry and that transition was tumbling upon transition. I actually left college for about a year or so to start a company. My hmm. goal was to figure out how I can build the first multilingual email for India. And that's what I tried to do. I raised some money for friends and family, start to hire some people, build us. So that was my what, first what year? What year was that? This was 2000 and 2001. So the, the peak and, and, the, and the drought of uh, .com, you know, if you remember 2001, mm-hmm. everything very just tanked. Well. You know, so mm-hmm. from 2001 to 2003, it was very hard to raise money. I remember going from, if you add .com to your name, your valuation 5Xs, <laughs> to if you have a .com to your name, your valuation 10X <laughs> in 2001 to 2003. You know, it was very hard to raise money, et cetera. So anyhow, just like a good uh, kid I am, I went back to school, finished my engineering, got a job at Microsoft, and my mom was very happy about that. <laughs> I love that. So when do you really get serious? Like, when do you feel like you kind of really clicked in in your career? Yeah, I would say when I, when I landed in Silicon Valley, I mean, honestly, I, was, uh, I have this desire to be a wanderer where I look uh, for different information, seek information, try to understand what's going on. I'm unlike uh, you know, some of the other players or some of the other people who were born and raised and they knew exactly what they wanted to do. I actually did not know what I wanted to do. I had to stumble upon, learn, stumble upon, learn, and see what really gets my energy going. So I would say when I landed in Silicon Valley back in 2007, 2008, that is when I think I found my jam. I was like building products, solving tough problems, and doing that at breakneck speed is where I thrive in. You know, people solve problems, many tough problems, and they might have a different time horizon to them, et cetera. But the thing that really excites me is when I get to take on a big challenge, solve it with the power of technology and do so in a compressed time frame, so you can actually have impact on society, impact on your customers very, very quickly. So I got here and uh, it's been a roller coaster ride. I've been very blessed to have worked at Facebook, Instagram, Airbnb. Where did you, where did you start? I started back in uh, at Microsoft. So my first job. That I know. I mean, and yeah. then and then and then Facebook. I'm sorry. And then Facebook. Facebook. What? Yeah. Let's start there. What did you come in at at Facebook? I was an individual contributor uh, working on uh, driving Facebook growth. And what year was that? That was the early years, like 2012 or so, something like that. And Instagram was just bought over. Uh, at that time, it was like 20, 30 people, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it was like eight when it was yeah, bought. Yeah, when it was bought. 12 yes, or right. something. 12, 12 and, people. And what did you feel at the time that, that this was the biggest company in this emerging space of social? Is that kind of what it felt like? It felt like very different things, to be honest. It felt like uh, we were t- tackling some major, we had stumbled upon some major uh, product market fit where p- customers were loving us. But more importantly, what it felt like was there was some mission to build, you know, some mission to solve, to help community connect with each other in a very democratic way. If you imagine back in the day, if you wanted to have a voice with your audience, Gary, you needed to have to go to media. You know, now you have your own voice. You know, you can connect with anybody you wanted directly. And that was the power um, of Facebook or social or Instagram, maybe, you know, that allowed people to have that platform and connect. So I felt like I was on a rocket ship. We knew nothing to be honest we were like building stuff learning building stuff learning and as the as the craziness continued we continued to stumble upon great product market fit and continue to deliver products for our customers what was the biggest aha you had in 2012 to 14 or 15 that window about consumers you know you're you're now really working you're getting deeper to your point the kind of world is evolving 
What, were, what was an observation that you can share with everyone that was a big aha? Because I think that might attach to the NFT thing. Yeah, absolutely. I had the biggest aha moment for me was when I joined Instagram, it was a tiny company. You know, we had less than, I think, 30, 40 employees. And we had this, we stumbled upon this idea of what you call today influencers, Gary. Like back in the day, you know, only a few people like you believe that a platform like Instagram can actually give you a voice to that extent, but there weren't a, like an influencer tag name, if you may. And what I saw, the power of creators, which is which I will connect back to NFTs in the future. But what I saw was I was at the front row seat building tools for creators to actually amplify their presence, their message directly to their community. And the rate at which the community adopted that was, in, was amazing. People wanted to know, know what Kim Kardashian is going to say, what Gary is going to say, what Ronaldo is going to say on that platform. And they wanted to have a dialogue with them. That thing was missing before Instagram got to where it, where it was because you had to do that asynchronously. And maybe many times you didn't even have the opportunity to do that. So to me, the rise of the creators and the rise of the creator economy, I luckily had a front row seat back then. And at that time as well, one of the other things we stumbled upon was visual uh, commerce. So let me share this anecdote back in the day. Uh, Instagram shopping is what I bootstrapped at the, at the company back in the day. And the idea and thesis was very simple. Creators are building a community and now they all of a sudden have a chance to actually communicate, but also drive commerce over there. And visual commerce was that, that uh, aha moment where you're like, okay, I can actually put a camera in front and actually put on the lipstick, put on that dress and actually yep. communicate to that audience what it is, as opposed to a search box where I need to precisely know what I want. I always joke about this, but you can't find inspiration in a search box. You just can't. You know, there's a, it's, you already need to know what you want and you go to the search box. You yeah, I mean, Google, Google's an intent machine. Exactly right. Social was a discovery machine. Exactly right. And that serendipitous discovery was really, really powerful. You know, I remember there was a merchant in Thailand, you know, who actually tiny merchant in Thailand, and they were selling flip-flops and people would visit Thailand and then follow them on Instagram. And you know how they would sell on Instagram? They'll put a photo up there on Instagram saying, if you want to buy this, DM me. Your yeah, if I remember, exactly. I remember. Right? DM in comments. Exactly. That's how all social commerce started. And then we, yeah, we got together to productize that version. Let's talk about the transition. So you were, at, you were at Facebook, then you went to the Instagram side. Is that what That's happened? Right. That's right. I was there at long? Facebook for a very short duration. I was there for Instagram for three and a half years. And then what? And then I went to another uh, company by the name of Airbnb. You know, it was early days, yeah. <laughs> very different domain. You know, I was just enamored by Brian Chesky, who was building a great company with a great mission. So I went over there to build Airbnb Plus, which is a high end of accommodations that Airbnb wanted to build before somebody else disrupts them. And you probably already know, when you stay in an Airbnb, the hit or miss. You know, sometimes you get a good house, sometimes you don't get a good house. And Brian Chesky wanted to build a company where you can also have a consistent experience of a high-end home where you can actually have a peace of mind. So that's what I built. I was a GM over there, ran product engineering, design, and operations to build that business unit from ground up. And then something crazy happened, Gary. This is something I'll <laughs> never forget in my life. Coronavirus happened. And if you're a travel company mm. and 3 billion people are locked up inside the house, there ain't no travel. Nobody's traveling. You yeah. know? And our, I remember all of a sudden we were talking about going IPO, successful company. And now we are trying to figure out how do we survive? You know, our revenue dropped. Like was, was, there real, was there real fear of that? Was yeah, there there like was real, real, real fear. Like I remember Brian Chesky on a, uh, on a company all hands saying, don't worry about it. We build this company to last. We have $2 billion that we raised that we never spent in our bank account. 
And four weeks later, he was in the same all hands saying, okay, this is, this is once in a hundred year kind of an event and we need to figure out what to do. If I remember correctly, our revenue dropped like seven or 10% of last year's revenue. You know, let me tell you this, no head of product, no CFO, no founder ever had a business plan on what to do. (laughs) That happens. When you lose 90% of your business. That's right. Exactly. That's impossibly challenging. So Brian got, went into a very different mode. We raised $2 billion in that he we had to lay off 1900 employees, you know, about 200 of those just in my organization. It was a painful, painful time. And what I joke about, but it's real is that, you know, I could not have gone to HBS, Stanford Business School to learn about what crisis leadership is. That's I was right. right in the front seat. That's right. You know, trying to survive, but also trying to grow because all of us believed that when this is all said and done, Gary, people will want to travel. Travel is in the blood of every individual. You know, there was a survey we did a long time ago, which is if money wasn't a consideration, if you could retire, what would you do? What do people say? I'll travel the world. <laughs> Why does it say that? Because that is how they build memories and, and experiences. And it's an extension of who they are. So we had hope. But during those uh, year, year and a half, it was a crazy time. Luckily, everything worked out just fine. You know, Airbnb went IPO, became a hundred plus billion dollar company. People are traveling. Uh, but it was a fun, fun experience being in the front row seat learning. And uh, when did you leave Airbnb? Uh, late uh, 20, what is it? 2019. 2020. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Late 2020. And then? Uh, then I took uh, a six months break. I was kind of, you know, to be honest, like when you do Facebook, Instagram, Airbnb, kind of hyper. Yeah, it's a lot. Companies, Corona. Man, you burn out. Yeah. Exactly. You burn out, you know, so fun, like. Not a fun fact, but the honest answer is I burned out. You know, I felt like I was not able to keep up with the craziness of that. So I took six months off. And during what that did you time, do? I just stayed at home because it was coronavirus. Couldn't go out. Oh, right, right, right. Right. I just stayed at home, connected with my, my family. By the way, I lost 20 pounds. I gained 20 pounds. How many? 20 pounds. You Good know? for you. Yeah, I, I lost 20 pounds. Like, man, I got to take care of myself, invest in my relationship with my wife mm-hmm. and kids. That's mm-hmm. what I did. And during that time is when I got into, got back into the rabbit hole of crypto and Web3. You know, that's when mm. I was like, man, if this is all happening right in my backyard. And, and I started investing in crypto back in 2013, 2014. <laughs> Fun fact is a tweet from me from 2014, I believe. When I said Bitcoin is the future, blah, blah, blah. I got zero likes <laughs> at that time, you know. But like I started investing there, but I never felt like this was the right time for me to jump in and be a builder. But as I spent six months at home learning and reading, I realized, man, this is where I can take my consumer ex- product experience, marry it with something that is fundamentally revolutionary, comes once in a hundred years kind of an opportunity, and build something really cool as a builder, not a trader, not a buyer and a seller, but as a builder deep inside the crypto industry. What was the aha when you got back into Web3, so you're, when you, the way you deliver that sentence, I assume it was something you were flirting with and looking at. Right. But now you had time. That's right. And so with that time, that's the big lesson for a lot of people listening. Sometimes you really, really actually have to take yourself out of your day-to-day. I mean, Absolutely. I, I don't think I would have been as deep NFT if it wasn't for Corona and the fact that I built up my management team during it, which gave me a few minutes during the holidays to look. And in that Absolutely. few minutes, it was enough. And then I went uh, in Q1 2021. Right. For you, um, when you when you stumbled back in, you started, you know, whether it was chat, Reddit channels or com- or yeah. Twitter or Discords or Google searching. Yeah. What was the first thing you found 
when you started doing your digging again? What had changed? What had stayed the same? Yeah, I think I think a couple of things happened. One, I, I like you said, all the places, Twitter, Discord, conferences, chatted with Brian, chatted with a bunch of other people as well, just to understand what is going on. Um, I think there were th- two or three different aha moments. One, I learned that, you know, in the 1990s, uh, Gary, information st- started to travel at the speed of light. You could be in India, you can open up NewYorkTimes.com and information will travel to you at the speed of light, right? Previously, when I was growing up, information took four days for New York Times to be delivered, a physical copy to India, you know? But what I noticed was for the first time, value and money can travel at the speed of light. Today, the joke in crypto is, what is the fastest way to send money to someone from San Francisco to London? It is to buy a plane ticket, sit in the plane, deliver it yourself, because it's going to take you nine and a half hours. A bank will take you five, five days. So what started becoming was like, I started to feel like value and money can, for the first time, travel at the speed of light. You can press a button, USDC can show up from one place to the other in about three to four minutes. It's a fascinating world. Bitcoin can travel around the world in a very different world. That was the first aha moment. The second aha moment was that money or rather your wallet could also become programmable. If you think about your bank account, it's just sitting over there. It's dumb money sitting over there. You need humans to actually program it, meaning earn yield on it, trade it, et cetera, et cetera. But you can imagine now your wallet can be programmable. You have smart contracts. You have other things that can actually interact with your wallet and can actually do amazing things that required human intervention before. And again, I come from a world of technology. So all of these technological innovations make a lot of exciting sense to me because then I can think of what real world problem to solve with this innovation that are happening around us. So that was the second aha moment that I can program and say, I want to earn yield in DeFi, or mm-hmm. I want to actually receive tokens back in case of an NFT. If I, if I own an NFT, I can actually have airdrops. All of that can be programmed at a massive scale without requiring human intervention. And then the last piece was, I was just witnessing early days about NFTs and how creator dynamics are changing. If you, I had a front row seat at how creator economy grew at Instagram. I can tell you, it was very unfavorable for the, for the creator in many, many regards. While the platforms did a phenomenal job, no taking away from YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, they did a phenomenal job of giving these creators distribution. The, in the process of doing that, the creator lost control. And if you think about NFTs, the creator has a lot of control. And the platforms for the first time have to morph to the creator designs. You know, it's a fundamental mindset shift. Yeah. So as a geek, technology geek myself, I was like, man, these are fundamental shifts that I believe happened once in a decade, once in a century, kind of fundamental yep. shifts. And you can actually build incredible products to actually see these things come to life for the masses. What did you not see that is now clear to you about NFTs 14 months ago, right before this all got crazy? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think a lot of things. So first of all, uh, <laughs> I did not see that NFTs, um, uh, in as much as I believe that there are more use cases than PFPs, you know, it was always a question, you know, how far can you push this? You know, how far? Like, yeah, there'll be in real life events that can be tied. You know, there was a concept. Yeah, exactly. You're doing that very well, (laughs) you know. Uh, But now that I'm sitting over here, it's like I can literally see anything that has ownership, anything that has then attached benefits by lieu of having ownership. Mm-hmm. Right. And anything that requires you to prove over time that you, you have that ownership is all disruptable by this new technology, using the word disruptable. Like they can be disrupted by this new technology. So that was an aha moment for me, which I did not catch up early on, you know, thinking that, yeah, there's a future. But like, did you, you know, amazing. knowing that you go geek life and I go consumer psychology life, did you understand how much it would act like the fashion industry where the ownership of the NFTs was 
a way to communicate really no different than a picture going viral on social? Yeah, I think that's a great point. So I, I wouldn't give myself enough credit to say I could connect the dots in the beginning, but over time, it started becoming very, very clear that these things could actually be connected just the way you described something mm -hmm. can go viral on social. You can take the similar analogy from fashion and actually think about how that can go viral as well. And the other thing I would say is I always believed in this, Gary, that community matters a lot, right, yes. for a creator, right? But the power of community is insanely more pronounced in the Web3 world than it was yes. before, right? The fickleness of a community in the world of Web2, where you can go from one to the other very easily because you don't have skin in the game, you know, you haven't invested $7 million to buy that board yeah. at Yard Club, right? Yes. It was a lot of fickle community, right? But now I see the people- The, the, the concern I have is that it's overcorrecting in the short term of this right. gold rush where people are only part of it because of the financial interest. And Absolutely. I think we'll find our middle soon. We'll, we'll find our middle soon. I think I, while it is true, what you're describing is, is definitely a problem. I do view that in the Cambrian explosion of ideas that every industry goes through, these kinds That's of right. things come and That's go. Right. They, that, right. always, that always happens. We just have never seen so many people deploy That's so right. much capital in the short term. Right. This is day trading internet stocks in 98 That's at right. a scale that is profound. It's profound. It's really, really profound. While yeah. still a very small community. I mean, even so, my podcast that's listening right now, a lot of them do not own an NFT, which I think is a nice segue because I think what you're up to in your day job is going to lead to a lot more people owning an NFT. That's our hope. Let's talk about that. Give me a yeah. little 411 on what you're up to. Why don't you tell everybody in the audience if they're unaware what's going on on that front? Yeah, happy to. So I think um, let's let's start first with the uh, with people who are creators, and then we'll come back to people who want to support those creators. I think the fundamental underlying revolution isn't that you can have a PFP, isn't that you can have a profile photo. The fundamental revolution is that as a creator, you have a lot more control than you ever had. And I want to give two examples to people. In the previous world, you create content on YouTube or wherever that is. It is becomes their property, right? At the end of the day, you're using their platform. It is part of their ecosystem. It's not your content per se anymore as per the terms of service, right? But in this world, your smart contract that powers the NFT is yours. If you can get a smart contract of your own, you can dictate the terms that places like OpenSea, Coinbase NFT will have to follow to be able to do that. The second piece that is very exciting is that as a creator, you can actually dictate and benefit from the, like the long-term sales of your, um, of your art as well. And that's super powerful. That mechanism did not exist easily in the previous world, but through the power of on-chain royalties, you can actually be assured that as long as the art that you've created sells for 100 years, you're going to benefit from it you know, as, as a creator as well. For the collector side, I think there's lots of challenges today, to be honest. You know, what we're telling collectors is what we probably told internet users in the early 1990s. You know, you got to have a command line prompt. You got to type in the IP address to get to a website. And then you can actually use that website. Remember 1990s, early 1990s. This is how people access internet. I think you're putting that technology in front of the collectors, which is not good. We got to solve the technology for the collector so it's easy for them. What are the solves over there? Number one, I think we got to onboard the masses, which means technology has to be abstracted in the background. The best technology to me is magical. You never know what it is. You just get to do what you want to do. And that technology doesn't exist in Web3 today. We are building it. As builders, we're building it, but we are in an early, early stage. The second piece that creators, uh, collectors also are, are telling us is that they want to actually be able to not just buy that NFT, but also be part of the community around that NFT. You know, a, a typical create, collector 
buys one NFT a month at best, Gary. And but what do they do? On a daily basis, they're connecting with Gary, they're connecting with the creator, they're in their Discord, they're chatting with them, they're trying to understand who other fellow collectors are and why they matter as well. And I think solving that problem will be really important because today these things are happening in a very disparate way. Some are happening on Twitter, some on Discord, some somewhere else. And if a platform can combine all of these things for the user, that could be incredibly powerful for those users to, to access. So my message to everybody is we're at the early stages. A lot of technology needs to be built, but yeah. there, there's a lot of excitement. To put this in context for everybody, winelibrary.com's website in 1996, the shopping cart was down 25% of the year. There you go. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know. Yeah, early days. We didn't know how to take Discovery, the credit card. It was declining. Right. We didn't anticipate that. Uh, you want to hear a great one, my friend? Tell me. The server that held up the website was in the closet of our store. <laughs> that there was is no, so epic. There was, there was no Amazon services. Right. There was no Shopify. There was no, there was no WordPress. There was no CRM. There was no Absolutely. shopping cart optimization. There's like, we built everything from scratch. Absolutely. And people don't remember that anymore. Absolutely. I mean, look, you want a good one? Yeah. Uh, we're recording this just as yeah. it looks like Elon's buying Twitter. Right. You, re you remember this. Twitter in 2006, seven and into early 08 was down all the time. Twitter in 2000, I don't know if you remember this because yeah. I see you looking in the sky thinking if you remember. In 07, yeah. I was there early, early. You were early, yeah. It was down every fucking day. As that, a matter of fact, Blaine Cook, the original CTO, who was awesome, yeah. kind of took the bullet and like resigned because, I mean, it would be down for hours almost every day. It's crazy. Crazy to think about those days. And, and you look what happened last week. Like, Akutars is a great community. They're building great stuff. But they ended up in a very yes. precarious situation. I always remind people, we are teaching creators technology. When actually what should we, we should be giving them are tools that then empower them to just focus on their creativity. Imagine a world where Adobe Photoshop didn't exist, Gary. And as an artist, as an illustrator, you have to not only draw the illustration, but then also have to worry about how that pixel is stored on the hard disk. You know, and if you mess up one time and there was a corrupt segment on the hard disk, you lost that part of the photo. That is crazy to think about that world. But that's the world that we're living in. We don't have an Adobe Photoshop of NFTs today. I'm using that as an analogy, but like you get the idea. We don't have the tools where the creators just focus on creativity while the technology is not what they worry about. And I think we are about to usher this era uh, in this year, in my opinion. I love it. Final thoughts before we get out of here. Anything that we haven't covered that you would like to touch on? I would say... We are super early, folks. You know, if you missed out on Board Ape Yacht Club or something else, don't worry. There's the next one coming. There's a lot of exciting things happening. Um, and please come in here for the, for, for the long term. You know, we're going to see a lot of ups and downs. We're going to see a lot of things coming up, disappearing, et cetera. But at least I am in this for the long haul. Coinbase is in, the, is in this for the long haul. I know, Gary, you are in this for the long haul. You know, we want to welcome everybody for the right reasons and continue to innovate as builders and creators to take this amazing community of NFT artists and collectors even bigger. Just final thoughts. Uh, the anxiety of launching so big, like the NFT platform, a lot for you, a little? Like, how does, like, if you, at the scale you're playing at with something that's so complex right now, it's so early. Was right. it anxious for you? It was definitely a lot of um, 
it, what I should say is excitable energy. You know, mm. I would say it was a lot of excitement. You know, it was a lot of energy, and sometimes you can confuse excitable energy to into nervousness or anxiousness. Right? To me, it's the excitable energy. We are at the beginning where we could actually do something that the community has always hoped for but never had, and that's what we were excited about. So the team worked twenty four seven for the last six months or so. You know, kudos to the team for shipping this out. I'm just excited that the first version is out. Now we can rapidly ship on top of it. You know, it's always hard to get the first brick down, the first wall created. You know, and then after that, you can ship really, really fast. So I'm really excited for people who have tried Coinbase NFT. My promise to all of you is we're going to be shipping every week, every day. Keep checking it out. We're going to have more and more features for you. And our job is to make it so easy. Like Coinbase made it easy for people to buy Bitcoin without ever worrying about the complexity. I want to do the same thing for NFTs. We want Coinbase to make it so easy for people to participate in the NFT economy that they forget about the how and they only enjoy the what. I love that. What a beautiful line. Sachin, thank you so much for being one of the pioneers of this future world. Thank you, Gary, for having me.